Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a huge privilege to start the year by introducing this podcast in which we'll be discussing the paper Recognizable Phenotypes Associated with Intracranial Calcification written by John Livingston, Stavros Devaros, Marjo van der Nap, and Yannick Crow, which is in the January 2013 issue. It'll be discussed by Dr. John Livingston, who's consultant pediatric neurologist at the General Infirmary Leeds in the UK, who's the first author, and Professor Thierry Fiesman, who is the Director of Pediatric Neuroradiology at Johns Hopkins USA, and Dr. Andrea Peretti, who's a pediatric neurologist at Johns Hopkins USA. Can we start with you, please, John, to outline the paper and its background? Yes. The paper began really with my collaboration with Yannick Crow when he was a clinical geneticist working in Leeds. And we were in regular contact to discuss clinical problems and indeed to look at scans. And around 2006, he identified the first four genes responsible for Acardi-Goutier syndrome. And following on from that, he started receiving an increasing number of scans sent for him to consider doing diagnostic testing for Acardi-Goutier syndrome. And we would often discuss these scans together. And it soon became apparent that there were many different radiological phenotypes associated with intracranial calcification and that there were many GANs that we felt clearly weren't typical of Acardi-Goutier syndrome, but it wasn't clear what they were. And so we began to look at them a bit more systematically. We then set up a study through the British Pediatric Neurology Surveillance Unit which was asking for clinicians in the UK to report uh, cases of Acardi-Goutier syndrome or congenital infection-like scans, and that ran over a couple of years. We didn't, in fact, get very many patients recruited to that study. I think it was around 18 in total. But during those two years, we had received uh, approximately 50 or 60 other scans from other sources And so we were getting quite a large number of scans with calcification. The other important player in this work is is Marjo van der Knapp. And as with many other pediatric neurologists and geneticists, we were very impressed with her work and what she had achieved through adopting a systematic approach to the radiological phenotyping. And we felt there was some merit in doing this for calcification, so we, we contacted Marjo and uh, discussed this, and eventually we met up and looked at many of the scans together, and we devised a scoring system to report the scans. We decided to, to use two different databases, a scoring system looking at MR features and a scoring system looking at the calcification features. And this paper really is the result of the first 119 patients the first few years of that study. Thierry and Andrea, would you like to comment, please? Yeah, maybe I can start. My name is Thierry Huismam, and I'm the pediatric neuroradiologist. And first of all, I would like to congratulate John with his marvelous work. I had the pleasure to review it, and I learned a lot from the paper. Um, I also think it is a wonderful continuation of the extreme important work which has been started as early as in 1991 by Mario van der Knapp together with Jaap Falk at that time, uh, her mentors. And 
looking at your paper, you have answered the question, which I had many times when being a neurologist looking at images and uh, thinking this is a very typical distribution of calcifications within the brain and they should be classified. I think what you did is exactly what should have been done and will help us uh, significantly in the future. What Mario van der Knaap and Jaap Falk have been doing now for almost two decades is indeed studying imaging studies and findings and trying to group them together and say, wow, this is a classification which can be helpful to identify diseases or to put imaging findings together and say this must be a similar or one group of diseases and then basically work it the other way around and say this are a couple of patients who have similar imaging findings. What is the etiology for this kind of findings? And starting with MR, looking at right metal diseases, this is, the, of course, the very important and very well expected the continuation looking at intracranial calcifications. Reading the paper, I think it would be really helpful if we also discuss in somewhat more detail the calcification system. But before John can explain it in some detail again to us, I just also want to bring up that I think it's also important that this is most likely the beginning of a whole new part of research in imaging of intracranial calcifications. I do think at some time point we should also include here some clinical markers like, for example, the temporal evolution of those calcifications. Do they start early? Are they slowly progressive, rapidly progressive? or are they stable for many years, and in addition to that, we should also include, of course, the age of the child, of the patient, when it starts to occur on imaging. I think those additional data points will even further help to subclassify all these patients. So I think I will give the word now to Andrea Peretti. I just want to congratulate you again. I think it is very helpful, this paper, and I will definitely use it in my daily routine. Every pediatric neurologist should read this paper, and should be aware of the fact how important it is to identify the patterns of calcification within the brain. And I give the word to Andrea now. My name is Andrea Provetti. I am a pediatric neurologist. I want first to congratulate you, John, for this uh, very helpful and interesting article. I think this article is important and helpful not only for the diagnosis of the uh, affected children, but it's very important that, as you are pointing out very well in your paper, uh, intracranial calcifications may be acquired or genetic. And making the correct diagnosis, it's important in terms of recurrence risk, genetic counseling, meeting the families after uh, uh, the diagnosis. So one of the next very important questions is, uh, about uh, uh, recurrence risk. I think uh, a correct diagnosis uh, using your pattern recognition approach is very important and uh, may be very helpful to establish the correct recurrence risk for the affected families. Well, thank you both very much. That's very generous uh, of you. I'd like to pick up the last point about the importance of diagnosis in neurology. It's an everyday part of our practice. The interesting thing, I think, about this work was that there was this constant, if you like, flip-flopping between whether something could be a genetic disorder or an acquired disorder. For example, the call for a one-related disease, something that looks like an acquired problem, which, in fact, is a genetic disorder. So this is a constant 
debate and certainly for some of the phenotypes I think we're able to answer that question. In your discussion uh, on page 54 you, you mentioned why calcification occurs in one location rather than in another is unclear. I think also this will be so important for the future to understand why do we have those calcifications in which location and I understand that you cannot solve all the problems. I'm really very interested to see how this is going to develop in the future to know why is in this particular case it's more bent-like, why is it more the central grain matter, why is it just a subcortical white matter. I think the correlation with high-end MR imaging and maybe also the correlation with follow-up imaging will at least partially answer these questions, why these particular areas of the brain are being involved. Do you think that we can expect to see a significant progress in the understanding of these calcifications in the coming years based on evaluating follow-up imaging, or do you think it is more that genetic analysis or maybe infectious analysis uh, what's going on on this logical level will answer these questions? I suspect we're more likely to get answers from the genetic side of things that the pathological data that's available, and it is limited for quite a number of these diseases, I think doesn't suggest a common mechanism other than that perhaps that in many of the disorders the calcification is related to blood vessels or indeed within the vessel wall. However, we see that in disorders that we know have quite different pathogenesis and pathogenetic mechanisms, and so that may not be a particularly uh, useful pointer we may get on to discussing where I'd like to be taking this work in the future, but i am perhaps mention this at the moment. So one of the groups that we are planning to look at in more detail are vascular disorders, um, children where we know they've got a vascular disease, whether it's moya-moya, vein of Galen aneurysm, and other disorders, and look at where we know they've got calcification and see if there's any pattern that occurs when there's a definite vascular um, etiology. We have a suspicion that there may be, but certainly in, in this paper there weren't very many cases with a definite vascular etiology, but we're hoping to get a larger number and look at this in more detail. I think what you mentioned, um, also the vascular disorder, of course, that is most likely we can extract much more important information about the understanding why those calcifications occur. If you look at those vascular malformations, I mean, everything what is happening in the venous gallium and rhythmal malformation, where we still don't know exactly why does one child have significant complications of the venous gallium and rhythmal malformation with all those cortical and subcortical calcifications, and some kids do much better, despite the fact that maybe from the hemodynamic point of view, as far as we see it on imaging, they maybe look very similar. So, indeed, I think that looking at vascular malformations and the impact on the brain hemodynamics will most likely partially answer these questions. In, in your paper, you show a lot of CTs, of course, and a lot of uh, MRs, and now, as you brought up the whole issue about vascular malformations, being a pediatric neuroradiologist, having had a, enjoyed the training in Europe, uh, I'm, of course, also very much in love with ultrasound. And maybe you can, I don't know, if you have any ultrasound data, maybe hidden in your data set. I have been looking at a couple of cases of a Sturge-Weber-Dimity syndrome a couple of years ago, and I noticed that I could see 
hyperechogenic cortical lesions at that time, I called it lesions, which were seen before I saw anything abnormal on CT and MR, but on follow-up imaging, I saw those lesions became calcifications. So yeah. what do you think would be the role, maybe, of using ultrasound in the perinatal, postnatal time period to maybe identify calcifications or ongoing calcifications even before CT would show it? Do you think there's any value for that, or is there just not enough data available? Well, I... I don't think there's enough data. Um, I think ultrasound is clearly highly sensitive, maybe not specific for, for calcification. We have a number of patients who have had ultrasounds, but I really do not have a lot of experience in interpreting these images and correlating them with the CT and MR data. I think it is an interesting question. Another phenomenon that we're interested in is the so-called lenticulostriate vasopathy, which is a neonatal ultrasound term, I believe. And we know of several cases from India where this appearance in ultrasound has gone on to be demonstrable as calcification within what is reported as lenticular striate arteries. So there may be another disease entity there. There's also, I think, some neonatal literature on the evolution of lenticular striate vasopathy and ultrasound to calcification in some of the congenital CMV patients. But I, I really don't have a lot of experience of this. I think it's a good idea to be looking in the neonatal period, and indeed recently a number of patients locally in, in Leeds have been detected because of ultrasounds. I think uh, what we discussed at the very beginning is you really start with a whole new field of uh, research on these kinds of calcifications and to better understand them. And you see there are many open questions. And it's just uh, I thought about it during this discussion as you brought it up with the vascular malformations that maybe we should also include the ultrasound. Indeed, what you said, I see frequently on ultrasound these so-called candlesticks in the basal ganglia. We yeah. say nowadays we, we call it fancy mineralizing vasculopathy. But when I'm honest, uh, I don't know exactly what we're looking at. We just know there's some calcium depositions over there, and sometimes I see them on follow-up imaging, and sometimes they disappear. And I think also there, what you said before, a lot of research is here to be done and to be worked on, and maybe even gives us earlier more sensitive information next to the CT and MR imaging. Very exciting and just opened a whole new research field, I think. I would uh, just give maybe two additional suggestions for possible following studies. The first one, uh, from a technical point of view, we discussed the CT, we discussed uh, ultrasound, maybe consider the role of gradient echo sequences like susceptibility-weighted imaging, which we are increasingly using, and we know that it is highly sensitive uh, for calcifications. And the second one, you already mentioned that you want to look at wider spectrum of etiologies. I think uh, you are acknowledging at the beginning of the method section that in this article there is some selection bias due to your and Yannick interest in Icardi-Gutierrez syndrome, and uh, it would be extremely helpful to include a wider group of etiologies which may also cause uh, calcification. Yes, I'm in total agreement with that, and that's what we hope to do. Both, I think, 
highlighted one of the practical issues, which is that many patients these days don't have CTs unless there's some specific thought that it's maybe going to add to more information. And so I agree completely that we need to do more work looking at the role of the gradient echo and susceptibility-weighted MR images, and indeed, if we can, to compare not just the sensitivity, but their ability to uh, show patterns with, with what it, um, can be seen on the CT. I think there are practical problems because of the fact that so many children these days don't have CTs. And in fact, one of the groups that we'd really like to get more data on are the congenital infections, but they're very, very rare in uh, a child with congenital infection, at least in the UK, that has a CT these days. And often they're quite reluctant to have one if they've already had an MRI scan. So we've got really quite small numbers of congenital infections at the moment. We have been collaborating with colleagues in, in Egypt who not only have many interesting genetic diseases, but also clearly still have more congenital infection. And so we're hoping that we may be able to increase the number of congenital infection cases that we have. I think listening to you, we should consider telling everybody who's listening here to this podcast to submit all cases with calcifications yes, yes. To li- that, that, that we send them to leads and that you are going to set up a whole database. I don't know if you want this, but uh, something I think to consider, indeed, to have a multi-center collection of data. Yes. Uh, we are suffering from exactly the same issue. I don't see that many calcifications per week, and indeed, most of the time, we go to MR. And if you do not have the sensibility weight imaging or high-end imaging, you can easily miss them. And there are still cases where I'm completely surprised by looking at a follow-up CT, which is maybe done because the child has a complication or for some other reason, and you say, oh, my God, it's much more calcification yeah. in his brain than you would have expected it from MR. I have a quick other question. Do you think, and uh, you're working tight together with Mario van der Knapp and also with your neuroradiologist, that we can expect to see more detailed information on MR just by going to a higher field strength to, to say these kids should be evaluated on a 3T scanner where the calcifications are more likely to result in susceptibility artifacts, making it more obvious on imaging, or do you say it doesn't matter that much in your experience if you have 1.5 T-scan or 3T-scan? I'm asking this also because more and more hospitals are now discussing, do we need a 1.5 T-scan or yes. should we go to a 3T-scan immediately? Yes. I have very little experience of this personally. I do understand that the 3T gradient echo and images are very sensitive for detecting calcium or mineralization. So that, I think, is certainly maybe the way forward, but I don't know at the moment whether that will be better than 1.5. I'm sure it will be for the mineralization, but I'm not sure whether that's going to be come in for routine imaging across the board. It may do. But I really think we've got very little data on that at the moment. Yeah, what I just also quickly thought about is you also know that depending on the kind of calcifications, and there are various kinds of calcifications in the brain, that it can have different imaging presentations on both CT and MR. That's also something to consider that not every hyperdensity is a straightforward calcification. There are many forms of calcification. Yes, yes. And 
at some time point, uh, we will have the possibility to differentiate between the various kinds of calcifications within the brain. But I'm not an expert in this field. I also have to read that, but I just know we can differentiate between the various kinds of calcifications. The last question, um, did you also look at the vasculature as a separate entity? We looked at calcifications inside of the grain-white matter, but did you also systematically evaluate the vessels for calcification within the wall of the vessel? No, that wasn't something that we had had in either of the scoring systems, so we haven't done that. A number of the patients that we have do have um, apparent arterial calcification, and my impression is that that is not a common occurrence in the pediatric population, but again, we have a couple of patients recently have come to our attention where it's really quite extraordinary arterial calcification and intracranial calcification, and I think there are, again, some diseases there that maybe could be defined. And there is a genetic disease of arterial calcification in infancy, but that generally doesn't involve the brain. But there may well be other very rare, I think, disorders, whether it's vessel wall calcification. My, my last question, and then I stop asking. I saw in a couple of cases you see really dense calcification in the cerebellum. And yeah. Andre and I, we are both very much interested in the cerebellum, that this partially due to the fact that we have bones to be trained by Oregon Boltshauser from Zurich, who is an expert in cerebellar pathologies. I was just curious, in those cases where you have a significant amount of calcifications, maybe too simplistic what I'm asking now, but could you correlate this with more cerebellar symptoms that can be, of course, motor symptoms or also more neurocognitive issues that those patients who have significant cerebellar calcifications showing a higher incidence of autism or other neurocognitive disorders? Do you have any experience or data um, we didn't do that, that clinical correlation with the, if you like, the degree of calcification in relation to the um, clinical phenotype. All I can say is that there's a wide spectrum of clinical severity in patients who've got cerebellar calcification, including, of course, the so-called FAR disease, where sometimes these patients have very dramatic cerebellar calcification, but very little or even no clinical features. Some of the um, Acardi Gutier patients obviously have calcification, but they usually have already very severe supratentorial brain disease and very severe neurology, and it's hard to identify any specific cerebellar feature. I think likewise the patients with CRMCC sometimes have very striking calcification. And in general, those patients really only seem to have clear cerebellar presentations if they have a cyst in the cerebellum with mass effect. We've now come to the end of our podcast time. Thank you very much indeed, uh, John Livingston, Professor Thierry Huisen, and Dr. Andrea Peretti for a fascinating discussion of a really groundbreaking paper. Just to remind our listeners that the article is Recognizable Phenotypes Associated with Intracranial Calcification by John Livingston et al. in the January 2013 issue.